The passage today is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning on page 1147, 1147 of the Bible. If any of you has a dispute with another... Dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. It is possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers. But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Everything is permissible for me. Not, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for the sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Our Father, we thank you that your word is indeed a light for our path and a lamp for our feet. And we pray, Father, as we reflect on your word now in this passage, that you would indeed show that to be the case. Please, Father, by your Spirit's help, open our eyes and our ears to hear. And Father, please give us hearts that see the goodness of your word. We ask this through Jesus' name. Amen. Well, while our modern world loves to debate what's right and wrong, there is one act that I think all of us agree is wrong. And whilst our culture shies away from the language of sin, there still is one behavior 
that almost everyone counts as sin. It is hypocrisy. To say you believe one thing and do another. Think of the Hollywood film star who speaks whenever they can on green issues about lowering our carbon footprint, yet they're caught taking private jets to the film premiere. Or those who tell us to keep the rules and yet are caught breaking them themselves. Or bringing it closer to home, what about those in the church, perhaps the church leader who has preached on purity only to be found out with a string of extramarital affairs? See, whoever we are, whatever we believe, hypocrisy isn't right. Our actions should match what we believe. Yet we know from our own experience it isn't always easy. It's easy to say one thing and yet do another. It takes a long time, doesn't it, for what we believe in our heads to sometimes trickle down to our actions. And that's where we find the Corinthian church in our passage this evening. See, in our passage this evening, we're going to see that Paul focuses in on two actions of this church, which show us that they haven't applied what they believe about Jesus. And as we look at what Paul says to them, I hope it will encourage us to to think about our own uh, actions as a church, to think, actually, do they match up with what we say we believe? Uh, We're going to focus on these two areas. Um, First two points, we're going to see that Paul speaks about how they treat everybody else, uh, love, not lawsuits. Uh, Then secondly, we're going to see how Paul speaks about how to treat their body. And then, let me be honest, those first two are quite heavy. And our third point uh, shows us why this is all matters, shows us the motivation. So if you're feeling pretty gloomy after the first two points, don't leave. Um, stay for the third one where we're going to see why this all matters. First of all, then, how you treat everybody. See, we've seen, haven't we, through this letter that Paul is writing in response to a number of reports he's heard from the church. And in our passage today, he turns to another report uh, you see in verse 1. He says, If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints. Uh, The judgment he's speaking about there is the judgment of the courts. Um, In other words, Christians in this church are taking one another to court to sue them. See, Corinth was a a city that loved litigation. They would say, if there's blame, there's a claim, as most daytime adverts tell us. Uh, If you were wronged in Corinth, the place you would go to get right was the courts. And particularly if you were influential, if you were rich, uh, if you had power, You would buy in the best lawyers. You would persuade the courts to support your cause. Of course, we have to use our imagination because we completely moved on in our day from that. Now, we don't know the precise issue in the Corinthian church, perhaps financial, perhaps some sort of business deal has broken down, or perhaps someone's reputation has been called into question. But no one in Corinth would have thought anything strange 
about these people taking one another to court, which is exactly the problem. Because for Paul, the church is meant to be different. And in this section, Paul shows us why it is different. Um, He shows them three things very briefly. First of all, he gets them to wind the clock forward and gets them to think about the future. Uh, Verse 2, he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Now, we're not quite sure, I'm not quite sure what, um, what he means by that. Uh, ask me in the Q&A afterwards and I'll tell you how little I know. Uh, but he does seem to be saying that Christians have some sort of role in governing the new creation. And if you're to do that, can you not sort out this little trivial case in your church? It's like imagining the prime minister. Imagine the prime minister, um, a prime minister who has to make decisions on uh, the war in Ukraine or Uh, the economy with the inflation or unemployment or strikes, that sort of thing. Imagine the prime minister got up one morning and uh, he he broke out in a sweat. He's in uh, having an anxiety attack and his wife asks him what's wrong and he says, I can't decide what color socks to have today. It just wouldn't make sense. How can you make big geopolitical decisions and yet not decide what color socks you should have? I've got blue on, by the way. See, Paul says, you're going to make the big decisions, and yet you can't sort this problem out in your own backyard. Not only does he get them to look at the future, but he gets them to think about who they follow. Uh, Look at what he says in verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? See, really, Paul doesn't want them to start having an internal dispute. Really, the fact that they have disputes of this nature is a failure already. And he says there is an alternative to protecting your personal reputation, and that is to let it go. And you hear, don't you, just echoes of the Lord Jesus here. He was wronged, but he didn't fight back. He was cheated by one of his closest followers, and yet he endured it. We don't need to fight every battle, Paul says. And thirdly, and finally, he gets them to think about who they are in verse 9. See, in verse 9, Paul draws a, a, a thick, divided line between the church and the world. Look at what he says. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is a paragraph that attracts a lot of attention, understandably. Um, And so, if it's okay, I'm going to take a little side road, so just... Stay with me on this one. If you, if you lose me, I'm going to bring you back in on the main carriageway. But we're just going to take a little side road to think about what Paul says here uh, before I come into how it fits. Someone asked last week, what's the definition of sexual immorality? And uh, here we see that word pop up again. It is the word in the original Greek, uh, the word porneia. And it describes a sexual activity outside of marriage. 
uh, porneia, that's where we get our word pornography from, and it describes anything that's not a marriage, uh, sex within a marriage relationship. And that can be heterosexual. You see Paul there spells out what it looks like. He speaks about adulterers, those who engage in a sexual activity with someone who's not their spouse. But it can be homosexual as well. The words here, um, let me just say, in the, 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 the old NIV this is, um, aren't very helpful on this point. Uh, the more modern translations, I think, have captured it better. Uh, because what Paul does here is use two words in the original that describes the passive and active participants in sex between males. And so what Paul's describing here is sex between two of the people of the same sex. You'll hear um, even from church leaders that actually the Bible's not very clear and it's very hazy and we can't quite decipher what it says. Actually, that really doesn't stack up as you look at the Scriptures. From cover to cover, the Bible does teach that the appropriate place for sex is within a marriage between a man and a woman. It's interesting, isn't it, how Paul says at that point, do not be deceived, but presumably because we might. But let's come off the side road and come back into where we were, because um, this primarily isn't about uh, what I've just spoken about, but it's being used to show there's a difference between the world and the church. Uh, that word in um, verse 9, for the wicked, is the same word that's used for the ungodly in verse 1. And so Paul's saying, look, not to kind of point your fingers at the world, but to say, look, you're putting church business before people who really don't understand. Why are you taking trivial church matters and getting those who disagree with you completely to settle them for you? They just don't have the same motivation as you do. Now, how does this apply to us today? I mean, um, I'm not aware of anyone taking another person to court. Uh, I've only had a few years in pastoral ministry, but I've not heard of that happening. But I guess we might not be doing that, but we do have our other avenues, don't we, for getting even. Um, think of the courts on Twitter or Facebook, uh, the cancel culture. If we're wronged by someone else, it's so easy, isn't it, to to go online and pull someone's reputation apart, to kind of go way beyond uh, an argument they make, to, to attack them and cancel them completely. And it's striking how easy it is for Christians to play that same game, to not look very distinctive, to show someone being stupid or inconsistent in their argument. Maybe you've not even heard of Twitter, and that's okay. You don't have to be on there. But... Um, we, I guess even if we're not on social media, we have our ways of getting even, don't we, when someone's wronged us? A little bit of gossip here, or a, a whisper in the ear to say, have you not seen what they did on Wednesday? See, Paul says, no, you're to deal with disputes in a fundamentally different way as a church. You're to look to the future, because in the future you will be part of the new creation. You're to look to what Jesus has done. He didn't fight back. And you're to look at who you are. You're different from the world around us. But there is a second area that the Corinthians are 
not having their actions match up with their beliefs. Um, It comes here uh, in verses 12 to 20 um, in how they treat their body. See, just as lawsuits were an everyday part of Corinthian life, well, so is this topic that Paul turns to here. Now, it might surprise you, but sex, I'm told, was not invented in the 1960s, uh, but was part of, that was a joke, by the way, part of everyday life uh, in the ancient world. And no less in Corinth. See, Corinth was a port city. It was a place where sailors would stop over, and they would stop over with all their money and with all their free time. And so you can just imagine how they spent it. And that kind of casual attitude to sex had kind of been embraced in the Corinthian church. Um, have a look at verse 15. You'll see there that Paul says, uh, speaks about prostitutes. Um, it seems that there were people in the church even sleeping with prostitutes. And you might think to yourself, well, surely, come on, that must have raised alarm bells. But actually, the church thought little of it. Look at verse 13. They would say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. See, that's a little phrase that the Corinthian church would say to one another, food for the stomach, stomach for the food, and God destroy them both. Um, It was a way of speaking about sex as as a kind of, um, as a hunger. You know, if you're hungry, where do you go? You go to Harvester, you go to Nando's, and you fill your stomach. If you've got a sexual urge, well, you go to the brothel and fulfill it there. And after all, God will destroy them both. He'll destroy the stomach, he'll destroy the body. And so what does it matter? You go to a restaurant, you go to a brothel. It's all part of the same thing. But Paul says, no, that does not match what Christians believe. He says two things here. First of all, that your body matters. Your body matters. Um, The Corinthians had a real hard time getting their head around this because they lived in a culture where they assumed the body didn't matter, that the the kind of body was a kind of capsule in which the soul lived, and it was kind of... um, it was kind of a, a, a death. It would kind of left behind, a bit like a kind of rocket booster going into the sea. And so they didn't think that the body really mattered. But actually, Paul says, no, it does. Look at what he says in verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. See, because of the resurrection bodies do matter. God hasn't just redeemed the kind of inner part of us. He's redeemed both the body and soul, and we see that in Jesus because he raised Jesus as a body, and Jesus is still a body. And so you can't just say that actually God's going to destroy the body. Actually, it matters what you do with it. And secondly, the whole body of Christ matters. Look what he says in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take then the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Now, Paul's analogy here, it's it's so strong that I almost wince at describing it to you, but he's saying, look, as a Christian, you're united to Christ, and so if you're going to a prostitute, well, it's the equivalent of dragging Jesus there to be with her. See, for the Christian, sex is not like food. There's no such thing as just sex or casual sex. It's not like being hungry. 
a preacher I know had a good illustration for this. He said, um, imagine you got super glue on your fingers and you pop them together. Well, after a few minutes, you can separate them, but it's very painful and you'll lose a lot of skin doing so. And he says that actually sex is more like that than we like to think in our culture. It's why sex is confined to the marriage relationship where there has been a, a public declaration of commitment to one another. That's why Paul says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. It doesn't say kind of, you know, see how far you can go. It doesn't say, well, it doesn't really matter. He says, flee, run. Now, how does this apply to us here at St. Mary's? I, I doubt that um, we think prostitution's okay, although that's not impossible. But I guess as you look at actually the ancient world and how prostitution was used, actually it's not dissimilar to our modern way that we use pornography or casual sex. Because back in the ancient world, people thought, what does it matter? It's just sex. It's there to fulfill an urge. And people say very similar things about websites and hooking up with someone else. But if the resurrection is true, if Jesus really has been raised as a body, well, then our bodies do matter. And actually, what we do with our bodies matters. It has that join-in effect of the superglue, whether we're doing it virtually or in person. See, next time we struggle with that, it's worth saying to ourselves, isn't it, that we're joined to Christ. He is with me. Now, I don't know what I expected, but I'm getting the sense that we're not sort of feeling overjoyed at that point. Perhaps some of us are feeling the weight of conviction. I know I did when I first looked at this, which is why I want us to get this third point as well, because Paul doesn't just tell the, Christi uh, the Corinthians what to do without showing them why. See, notice how he finishes each section. He can't help but tell us the gospel. Uh, in verse 11, he finishes by saying, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. See, because of Jesus, people who have messed up sexually, who have been greedy, who have been idolatrous, who have been addicts, who have been thieves, they are washed. I spoke last week about my cleaning of the car. It's a very trivial example, I know, but there's a sense in which it's utterly transformed. Uh, and, and that is what happens in the gospel. It's very comforting, isn't it, to think that actually people like me were in the early church, people just as messed up, people who had failed in all sorts of areas. They were the ones that made up the early church. And in verse 19, he finishes that section by saying, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So you were bought with a price. God cared enough to dwell with you by his Spirit. He cared enough that he gave his one and only Son to buy you back. 
See, he doesn't say, sort yourself out and then come to me. He doesn't say, I want perfect people who have never messed up in these areas and then you'll be part of this kingdom. See, God sends Jesus, even when we were messed up, to come, to clean us, to make us right with God, to forgive us, to wash us. And the Christian life is not about us kind of pulling up our socks, trying to achieve the impossible. It is about having this reality in Jesus trickle down into our actions, into our thoughts, into our everyday. See, as you look at this, chances are you will have failed in these areas. I know I have, and um, I know there are many things here I've failed at. But it's wonderful, isn't it, to think that God doesn't look at our failures. He doesn't see you and see all the people you've mistreated, all the wrong websites you've been on, all the relationships you shouldn't have had. He sees you, and he sees you as he sees his son. See, Jesus is the one who lived this perfectly. He didn't fight back against his neighbor. He didn't take his neighbors to court. Jesus was the one who lived perfectly. It was never sexually immoral. But the reason he went to the cross, the reason he endured the nails was for you, to wash you, to sanctify you, to justify you. Paul says, you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. We've seen, haven't we, that actually it matters how we treat everybody else, that we don't engage in lawsuits or sort of fighting back because we know the future, we know we have been forgiven in Jesus. And we've also seen that actually it matters how we use our bodies. Sex isn't just sex, it's not just casual. But because Christ has risen, bodies matter. But we've also seen that in the gospel, people who are messed up in all these sorts of areas are seen as righteous, who are encouraged to come into God's kingdom. Let's pray. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. And so we praise you, our Heavenly Father, that the Lord Jesus has bought us with his own body. And we pray that we would be a church, Father, who lives out our relationships with one another in a way that reflects Christ. And we ask for your enabling by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. We've got lots of questions. Um, We will try and get through as many of them as possible. Um, uh, I think, yes, they are going to be up behind me. So we're going to start with um, the one that's got the most votes, which um, I'm going to ask you, Rob, what level of dispute in verse 4 is being referred to as being appropriate for being kept within a church? Historically, there has been significant abuse perpetrated under church-related cover. Thank you for asking that. Um, Can you hear me? Um, Thank you for asking that because it gives me an opportunity to clarify what I meant and what I I think Paul does mean and doesn't mean. 
Um, I think if there are any instances of abuse in church, I think that doesn't get kept within the church. Uh, I think that does go quite often to the police or to authorities outside. Uh, the reason I say that is Romans 18, uh, sorry, Romans 13 rather, gives us a reason for that because Paul says that God has put authorities in place to reward good and punish evil. So I think there's every theological uh, justification for uh, referring matters to the police or referring um, instances of abuse outside the church. I think what is being spoken about in 1 Corinthians 6 is what you might call a civil case, not criminal, and there's a level of it being trivial in the whole scheme of things that actually it doesn't matter a huge amount in the scheme of things, but um, that's quite different, I think, to cases of abuse in church. And I think we want to say that with cases of abuse in church, please do report it. Don't, you know, please speak to the parish safeguarding officers um, and uh, they, will, they have a procedure to follow, um, which means reporting to the diocese and, if necessary, then going to court, going to the police. Yeah. We, we do not want to cover anything up. Um, so, yeah. Okay, um, next question, uh, which, again... Rob, this is to you, given it follows what you said, and you even asked for the people to say it. Where else does the Bible mention judging the new creation and angels? Oh, it's just moved. Um, Paul seems to have a clear idea of how this will work. Yeah, he does. I'm not sure I do. Uh, (laughs) um, There is mention of it in Daniel 8. uh, So have a look there. I didn't have time to find a verse. But Daniel 8, um, I could tell you where it is on the page, but not what verse it is. Uh, Daniel 8 there talks about actually uh, the saints, the kind of members of this new creation judging the, the world and even angels. Um, how that precisely look, I don't know. But I guess it isn't just that we sort of sit there in the cinema and watch Jesus get on with it, that actually he will give us responsibilities. He will share that ruling with us. Um, and I guess there's a sense in which that therefore does mean it's a bit weird to kind of go outside and kind of settle church matters with, um, with sort of outside people. But that's probably as far as I want to go at the moment on that. Great. Thank you. Um, Woody, to you, uh, there's a number that I think came up from last week. Um, um, so one is, how is someone's unrepentant sin meant to be dealt with by kicking them out into the world where they have nobody speaking God's truth to them? Um, there's a number of saying similar things. Is it right to kick people out when they have unrepentance in? Yeah, so this is going back to last week. So 1 Corinthians 5, if you remember looking at that and how Paul calls the church to respond to uh, a case of um, sin in the church. And important to remember that this, um, this is a case of unrepentant and persistent sin. So Paul's not saying here, this is how you respond to every single person in every instance of sin, otherwise there'd be no one left in the pews. Um, This is a case where there is someone who doesn't think they're in the wrong, who is keeping on going with this. And even worse, Paul says, the church says it's okay as well. And so Paul's saying there is a right place to be calling people to account, to, to be challenging them over sin. And and we want to be doing that as a church family. We want to be getting to know people and loving people so much so that we want to challenge them over sin. Um, And yet, if there is sin serious enough that people are going, no, it's all right, I don't don't care about it, 
So actually going, look, what does that look like in terms of you remaining as part of the church fellowship as a member of the church body? Um, because as Rob's challenged us from 1 Corinthians 6, our lives should reflect and match up to what we believe. And therefore, um, it may be right to, ask, to remove you from the church membership. It's worth saying as well that this is a case of serious sin that not only affects the individual, but it's affecting the whole church as well. And so because of that significance of the seriousness, um, there is a need to remove the sin from the church. Um, but that does not negate challenging that person and calling them to repentance. And I don't think that then says when they have been removed to just kind of forget that person, but wanting to continue to challenge them. But there is a seriousness here, Paul says, of as a church, you are called to be different as a community together, as a body of, fellow, of believers, and therefore to, to keep that, that seriousness in terms of removing them from the membership and I think we mentioned last week from the significance of sharing the Lord's Supper together as a body of believers. Great, thank you. Uh, this next one, I'll just link to that, but it's talking about the denomination. So, uh, Rob, I think I'm sending this one to you. If a denomination permits persistent and unrepentant sexual sins in leaders, should... Sorry, it's just moved. Uh, should believers campaign for change or just leave and find a biblically sound denomination instead? Thank you for that question. There is a lot in that question, um, so I probably will not do it justice. Um, I think uh, what I'd want to say is that wherever there is persistent and unrepentant sexual sin in leaders, um, we don't launch a campaign or something, or we don't sort of just leave, uh, but actually we want to call our leaders um, to uh, reflect uh, the scriptures like we would do any other Christian, like Woody's just told us. So that includes me. If you find that actually I'm teaching something that's not matching up with my life, it's important you tell me that, uh, and if it's serious enough that you tell others about that and call me to account on it. And I think that goes for the rest of the church. Now, in, I can only speak for the Church of England here. Um, that, that's maybe what's behind this question. But what we're trying to do in the Church of England is not change anything in terms of its doctrine. Uh, the Church has held to this doctrine throughout its history and has taught this consistently uh, and uh, will, has not and is not likely to change its doctrine of marriage. What we as a church are trying to do is call our leaders to honour that, what, what they say they believe. And uh, sadly, I think in, in the case we're in at the moment, there are people who are um, not, um, not seeing the goodness of that doctrine, but also not prepared to actually hold fast to it. Um, so I'm sorry if I fudged that, but that's slightly, uh, that's what I think I could say on that. Great. Thank you very much, Rob. Um, Verse 9 in the reading said, male prostitutes, um, but you said homosexual offenders, which is right. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I don't know quite what I said. Um, it's all a bit of a blur when I'm preaching. Um, sorry. What, I could tell you what I meant to say. Um, so uh, I can reiterate. So verse 9, yes, as I said, I think most of the NIV is really good. On these words here, these aren't very helpful translations. Um, the two words Paul uses, one, 
Word describes the, I'm sorry to be slightly graphic here, but the passive recipient in a homosexual relationship um, is a word uh, that Paul uses, and the other word he uses is for the uh, active participant in a homosexual act. Uh, I don't, I think that includes prostitution, but I don't think it's limited to that. I think he's talking about any sort of homosexual sex. Um, I hope that clears, clears up. And I think the reason I say that is because I think there is a lot of blurring of um, things, and, and, and a lot of people will tell you, oh, you can't really tell what the Bible says, but actually there's a, a heck of a lot of data in the Greek world, and we do, can say with quite a lot of certainty what these words did mean and what they didn't mean. Um, so, yeah. That's really helpful. Thank you very much.